Welcome to Pat Sherlock's podcast series, interviews with top mortgage sales leaders. Learn practical tips for improving sales management results. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Pat Sherlock, and welcome to the podcast. Today is a deeper dive on the Mortgage Professionals Handbook, Succeeding in the New World of Mortgage Finance. I have with me Jess Lederman. Jess is an icon within our business. Jess started in his career four nationally successful mortgage origination firms. He was well known for his capital markets expertise, and that includes securitization of arms. In his corporate career, he was with Freddie Mac, Ohio Savings Bank, Countrywide, and certainly Connecta Federal Credit Union. Hi, Jess. <laughs> Hi, Pat. It's, it's uh, great to be talking with you. And of course, you're also an editor, which is obviously what we're focusing on today. So Jess, why don't we talk about how did you get into mortgage banking? Let's go back to the beginning. All right. Well, I, I had a very focused and sophisticated job hunting strategy when I, when I got out of school in 1980, which was uh, pretty much to apply everywhere I could think of and, and take the first job anyone offered me. But I just happened to be lucky that uh, that was in the research department of a mortgage insurance company. First of all, because it, it gave me a, a national bird's eye perspective on this business. And second, because back then, the best secondary marketing talent all worked for the DMI companies. Hmm. So I gravitated towards secondary. And uh, in the next few years, there were, there were many of us who played leading roles as you know, in those days, that's was when Wall Street and Fannie and Freddie began to dominate mortgage finance. And, you know, I, I was thinking that it's interesting how the conditions when you start out in this business influence your perspective on things. Because in those years, mortgage rates were in the high teens. And the thought of getting down to single digits, let alone back to uh, like the long term average, which is what, something like six and a half, seven percent, seemed an impossible dream. But I think for loan officers who started more recently, 7% rates probably sound like, I don't know, nuclear winter, right? Sure. But, but the, uh, the 80s, they were an extraordinary time to get started in this business. It was, it was the dawn of mortgage securitization, especially for jumbos, even though $100,000 was a jumbo back then. And wholesale lending was just starting to take off. And then I had a front row seat on two of the greatest mortgage disasters of all time. The complete collapse of the savings and loan industry due to the terrible mismatch between their assets and liabilities and the huge level of mortgage defaults on high loan to value ratio, negatively amortizing arms. And of course, you know, we all learned our lessons and those mistakes have never been repeated again, huh, Pat? We only wish. Well, that's a great point. I can relive those years myself. And I want to talk about your new book in particular, which I think is such an appropriate book for these times. But this is a sequel to your previous one that's well known within mortgage banking, which is our the Mortgage Professionals Handbook for 2020. Talk about how you got involved with this project and you were able to really corral a lot of the well-known people within our business. Yeah. Well, well, during the, uh, the 80s and 90s, I had published a number of books on mortgage finance. But then in, in 2015, it occurred to me that nothing, no, no comprehensive books on mortgage banking had been published since the Great Meltdown a few years earlier. So I'd gotten involved working with a few charitable organizations after retiring in, tw in uh, 
2011. And I thought it would be pretty cool if we could create a, a really solid industry resource and then give the proceeds to various worthy causes. So I got in touch with uh, 40 some odd, uh, a little more than that, uh, industry leaders and suggested we all work pro bono. And the result was a set of three volumes published in 2016, Mortgage Professionals Handbook, which uh, I'm pretty pleased have sold thousands of copies. We've raised so far over 160,000 for charity, but the industry keeps on changing, huh? So, so you know, what do we have today? Refinance era, fading in the rear view mirror, strategies adjusting, technology keeps advancing. And so we just came out with a revised and expanded editions of all three volumes. So just very briefly, uh, uh, volume one uh, covers uh, industry overviews and loan origination, including two terrific chapters you authored on talent acquisition and improving B-level originators. And then uh, volume two deals with various aspects of operations, technology, compliance, loan servicing. And finally, volume three, in-depth discussions of secondary marketing and financial management, although it really should be required reading for any mortgage broker considering a broker to banker transition. Yes, it's a terrific volume. And if you haven't purchased the first set, you should certainly do that. It's on Amazon and likewise, the new publication, which I'm thrilled that you've come out with because certainly a lot of things have changed, but some things are the same as you know. Um, and I want to tap into your capital markets uh, experience because that actually was my same experience. And you wrote a chapter called Dead Men Can't Sell Loans. Talk to our listeners about this issue where you talk, you say long-term success does not go to the smartest or the most po polished. It goes to those who survive. The temptations of, of near-term opportunity can seem irresistible. And, and, you know, the thing is, sometimes a near-term can even last for years. But, but I think the, the, the question that the winners ask in the end, the ones who, who make it out alive, right, uh, they ask if things go sideways on me, if it all hits the fan, can I still survive? So let me tell you a story that I share in the first chapter uh, of volume three, the, the one you alluded to, Dead Men Can't Sell Loans. During the 80s, I helped to build uh, two of the first uh, jumbo securitization conduits. And one of them was at a storied Wall Street firm, which was famous for its, its trading expertise. Now, years later, that firm would be a casualty of the great mortgage meltdown. But when I worked there, Pat, blowing up was unthinkable, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. The, uh, the fixed income department had been created not that many years before I joined by two of the smartest, most successful, and most unusual men on Wall Street. I'm not going to use their, their real names. Let's just call them Jimmy and Manny. Now, Jimmy, he was, he was short, soft-spoken, intensely intellectual. But Manny was this, he was a man mountain. He was tough talking. He's the kind of guy you'd want to have on your side in a, in a street brawl. And together they were a money machine when I got there, but it wasn't always that way. So during the seventies, at the dawn of the era of financial futures, they'd been partners in a, in a small hedge fund, which made huge amounts of money trading what's known as the cash futures basis. The basis, that's the spread between the the price of a futures contract and the price of the 
underlying cash instrument. And it's a perfect example of a theoretically low risk trade. Everything, everything went swimmingly for these guys until it didn't. And one day the basis got way out of whack. Well, it would eventually revert to the normal relationship, right? So that just meant they could make money shorting more of what was rich and buying more of what was cheap. And then the basis got even more out of whack. Now, here's the thing. Spreads, they, you know, they may or may not revert back to normal levels. But even when they do, you have to be able to hang on long enough to book the profit. And that can take truckloads of capital. That can take sell everything you own and you still don't have nearly enough capital. Now, if, if Jimmy and Manny could have ridden a trade out, they would have made big money, but they put on a trade they couldn't ride out. So they went broke, but they got lots smarter. They'd learned their lesson. Now they were determined to become volatility commandos. Nothing was ever gonna blow them up again. And that's the philosophy they put in place when they set up fixed income at that storied firm I joined in 1985. So does that mean they'd become Wall Street wimps, content with mediocre returns? No. In fact, this firm epitomized the style of doing business that's common to, to many of the most successful mortgage firms I've known over the past 40 years, from the, the smallest mom and pop broker to the largest aggregator. It's a blend of hard-hitting aggression on the one hand and obsessive, paranoid oversight on the other. And that is an acquired skill. And it's a, it's a lot of what I talk about in Dead Men Can't Sell Loans. Well, that's a great story. And I do remember those folks myself. So it's interesting that you bring that up. You also say in the same article, the same chapter, losing money may or may not make you broke, but running out of cash, a liquidity crisis will almost always make you broke. Talk about that. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, timely, actually. You know what? The story I just told, right? Jimmy and Manny, they had a uh, they had this brilliant trading strategy. They went broke because they didn't have the cash to meet margin calls. Well, you know, what's, and what's been dominating the financial news uh, this year, right? It's a, a Silicon Valley bank, Signature, First Republic. Reliance on hot money put them at, at greater risk of a run on a bank, right? And when depositors pulled their money out, that forced liquidation of underwater securities in their portfolio. So that turned unrealized into realized losses, which just, you know, sealed their fate. So, so for, for mortgage companies, the obvious issue is, is their ability to finance the warehouse. And we have a great chapter on that subject in, in uh, the same volume three of the handbook. And, you know, you think about the volatility in the banking sector, maintaining multiple counterparties, multiple sources of financing is critical, not to mention outlets for products that can clog up a warehouse, right? Like investor rejects. So, more aggressive strategies, you know, aggregating non-agency product for bulk rather than loan by loan sales, for example, to improve execution. Sometimes that can increase liquidity risk. So if you got the mindset of a volatility commando, you pair that aggression with appropriate paranoia, with alternative strategies if things, they don't go according to plan. Uh, countrywide, where I once worked, uh, and was once the largest mortgage lender in the in the known universe, it made its share of mistakes, right? But one thing it did right was to maintain billions of dollars of backup lines of credit. 
and they they paid fees to those credit providers for years and and there were plenty plenty who wondered if it if that was all a waste of money for for some far-fetched worst case that could never you know would never materialize and then all of a sudden it was the summer of 2007 and the market for non-agency product froze up just just vanished right you couldn't sell them as whole loans you couldn't package them into securities but Countrywide's backup lines prevented bankruptcy and allowed it to survive long enough to negotiate a merger with uh, Bank of America. So when you talk about, and you make this point, when disaster strikes, which we see so often in our business, you're talking about in mortgage lending in particular, it crosses departmental lines. And you say great organizations don't operate in silos. Speak about that. Yeah. Well, avoiding silos, it's a matter of corporate culture. Um, it's not going to just happen by itself. In, uh, in that chapter, I wrote, Dead Men Can't Sell Loans. I imagine asking the new CEO of a mortgage company, uh, if you walk around your shop, do you see the general counsel and the EVP of sales chatting in the coffee room? Is your, uh, is your head of secondary r routinely wandering into the CFO's office? And is, is their interaction consistent? Is it on some formalized basis, which uh, you as the CEO have enthusiastically supported? Maybe you've, you've even integrated it into the comp plan. So it a, becomes a fundamental part of corporate DNA. I really like the idea of a CEO regularly getting together with direct reports to, to brainstorm both aggression and paranoia. Because sometimes, you know, people think it should be the primary job of certain individuals, certain positions, chief risk officer, for example, to focus primarily on paranoia. And the primary job of others, chief production officer, for example, to focus on aggression. And that's, you know, there's some truth to that. Uh, but unless both of, uh, of those uh, individuals are comfortable playing either role, uh, meaning thinking paranoia, thinking aggression, uh, you're not going to attain that optimal blend of caution and aggression that's the hallmark of, uh, of the most successful organizations. So a CEO needs every one of their reports to be a, a volatility commando. And look at the, uh, the implication of avoiding silos when it comes to secondary marketing. Novices assume that major sell-off period of rising rates right, are the, the big risk in hedging. But veterans know just the opposite is true. You really have to understand the behavior of your pipeline in a rally to avoid being under or over hedged. So if you think about the epic rally from fall of 2018 through the summer of 2020, 10-year yields, they dove from something like three and a quarter down to around half a percent. The short side, the hedge side of a, of a pipeline hedge obviously lost money. So the question was after rate renegotiations, after outright fallout, was there enough gain on sale to produce a, a net profit? So when a, a CEO asks a uh, uh, head of secondary, how does uh, he understand pipeline behavior? How does he come to understand it? It's, it's not enough just to hear about data analytics. He needs to understand how do things work in the trenches in processing, underwriting, closing, to really have a handle on the pipeline. He's not going to know that staying in his silo, right? 
De Dean Brown uh, runs hedging firm, a hedging firm called Mortgage Capital Management in San Diego. He wrote a, a terrific chapter that follows mine on mortgage pipeline risk management. And he has an appendix that lists uh, ways to lose money in secondary marketing. And in the, uh, in the 2016 edition, he listed 100 ways. This time around, he upped it to 121. And I'm just going to read you three of them. Allow loans that have no chance of showing up with a 1003 to be locked. Let loans locked in a no application status be in the pipeline for the whole lock period. Allow the funding department to close loans on locks that have expired or don't match what's been locked. So anyway, my point is secondary and operations need to be joined at the hip. Silos can never be allowed. Well, you raised a really great point, which raises the issue from my viewpoint of being in the industry a long time also, is that the silos happen really, uh, certainly at the top, where the person coming to, let's say, they're going to be the CEO. If they're coming from, let's say, the risk management side, they don't really get the, un the sales side. And if it's likewise, if it's a head of sales type that now moves to the top position, they don't really understand the capital market side. And so we've almost made this funnel really direct and taps into reinforcing silos is that what's your thoughts on that no you're right you're absolutely right it takes a it takes a real conscious effort uh, to break out of that and that's uh that's why i make the point that you really need to formalize the, uh, those interactions and when you get the periodic brainstorming sessions that a ceo would have with his direct with these various department heads talking through Paranoia and aggression, right? How do we how do we do more business? How do we make more money? Hey, what are all the things that can go wrong? I think they're eye opening when that happens uh, uh, as a group and and people learn from each other. And certainly the uh, uh, CEO to be effective has no choice but to dive into the weeds on, in particular, on the areas that uh, he or she is is least familiar with. So you as a longtime capital markets person, this is just my own experience as a ca an ex-capital markets person, is that I do find that the sales side doesn't really understand capital markets as maybe the biggest tragedy. And maybe that's why Dean has such a long list. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, that's my experience is that that they really don't recognize how this is all tied together. And I agree with you 100 percent that it all has to be working together. Otherwise, you have poor results for sure. Any thoughts on that? It takes an extra effort on the part of the uh, uh, of the CEO to assess where those uh, gaps are in in the uh, you know what the weaknesses of uh, each of his uh, uh, department heads are. Uh, and to look for ways to to shore to shore those up and and again I think that joint brainstorming when the uh, when the uh, when the secondary guy in one of those meetings talks about the things that can go wrong that are that are making the hedge less effective that are costing the company money and they and, and it turns out hey it's it's salespeople who are um, you know backdating uh, <laughs> backdating locks right in a in a rising rate market or whatever uh, or it's the it's it's how things are being handled and processing or underwriting or, or closing and you know that's where I start to open across department lines well you also raised a good point in your chapter when you talked about the what you call the state of the art uh, hedging tools, for example, computerized hedging models and analytical measures like value at risk. 
what is all this about? Didn't, didn't you use some of these tools yourself? Or, or where do you kind of fit all this picture of how they should be looked at? Yeah, I, 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 um, I express a little bit of skepticism about, about some of these state-of-the-art things. And don't get me wrong, I've, I've used them, relied on them. You know, measures like VAR, value at risk, they're very, very valuable. So let's, let's talk about what that, what that means, right? If a, if a report from secondary shows the CEO a one-day 1% VAR, value at risk, of $100,000, what does that mean? It means that based on historical data, there's only a 1% probability the firm could be exposed to a $100,000 loss during the next day, given the hedge position at the time that the report was created. So the idea is, if that's within the firm's risk tolerance, given their capital, the CEO can sleep well at night, right? He knows secondary has things under control. But my point in, in expressing some skepticism is that an appropriately paranoid mindset constantly looks under the hood to see if all the risks are actually being taken into account. So the reality is that risks change as strategies change. You know, if you if you take the example I brought up a little while ago, where secondary switches to aggregating non-agency product instead of selling loan by loan, those kind of strategies involve what's known as a cross hedge. The instrument you're shorting, probably you're selling, probably uh, agency mortgage-backed securities is different from the asset you're long, those non-agency loans. Now, there's always a chance that investors in non-agency product will fade the market, widen out spreads, and that drastically reduce or entirely eliminate and gain on sales. So in a rallying market, you could actually lose on money on both sides of the trade. Now, so the question is, is that sort of risk built into the, uh, the, that VAR measure? That's that uh, state-of-the-art tool. And, and really, it's just a subset of uh, the bigger issue of not being overconfident in the output of computer models. But, you know, on the one hand, model-based decision-making, Pat, you know, it can assure consistency mm -hmm. and rationality under difficult conditions. Anyone who's been around long enough can, can think of days when, you know, the MBS market saw three or even four handles of dollar prices, mortgage-backed securities range going from 95 mm -hmm. and to 98, 99. Uh, and that's a big deal if the market's moving in one direction, but it can be an even bigger deal if the market moves strongly one way than reverses. You know, okay. there's a famous boxer who once said, everyone's got a game plan until it gets hit in the face. I think that was Mike Tyson who said that. And, you know, a, a, a three or four handle whipsaw is a, that's a real uppercut to the jaw. So, but so the, the models, I use them, I built them early on. Um, they're great, but you constantly, the staff has to have a mindset to constantly question whether they actually reflect the way the world works. You know, take an example of a, a big increase in mortgage-backed securities prices, let's say three points, correlated to a drop in pull-through from, let's say, 80% to 60%. All right, including you know the impact of rate renegotiations. Let's say you're running a retail operation. So the question I'd ask is, how quickly do consumers react to changing mortgage prices? Well, yeah, faster than they used to, but not instantly. So if you had a uh, if you had a a day where the market dramatically sells off, but then comes back by the end of the day, we've all we've all seen that. Uh, not much is going to happen to your pull through at all. So if somebody's model didn't take into account the time duration of the relationship between 
between when a, a, a loan was locked and the current market, you know, they could they can get they can get whipsawed. They could have they could have put on one trade at the, in the morning and reversed it in the uh, by evening, and uh, you know, massive unnecessary loss. And, th and that may seem sort of like an obvious case, but let's let's consider a little more subtle subtle case just to illustrate this point about how you got to be careful about models. Let's say say someone's running a, a TPO shop, wholesale correspondent, and you ask your your manager what drives fallout given any particular loan status. And let's say she tells you, well, it's the relationship between the locked rate and the current market. And the question is, as of when? You know, let's say let's say you're looking at a lock broker took down 60-day best efforts, and you're looking at a lock at four percent. Current market's four and a half. You might think, okay, real high probability of pull through. But what if market rates had first dipped down to three and a half a week after the loan was locked before spiking back up to four and a half three weeks later? That loan might already be locked with Acme funding or arch rival, right? The loan's fallen out, your model doesn't know it. Unless it's been calculating fallout probability based on the length of time the market was in a particular interest rate level. Now that's a that's a tough bit of modeling, but my my real point is that my main point is that it also requires the modeler to understand how things actually work out there in the real world. There was a Chinese philosopher, uh, Lao Tzu, who said uh, something like 2,500 years ago, to know one's ignorance is the best part of knowledge. And now, now that's talking like a, a true volatility commando. Well, Jess, you also made the comment, which I think is really an important one, about you could care le less about loan level execution, and it really is better to kind of look at it more in a global. And this is really what you're talking about now. Just reinforce that again, because I think many times mortgage lenders don't get that. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if a CEO, uh, if you ask uh, the EVP of capital markets, uh, how do you add value? He, he might say something like, uh, well, I protect your bottom line against volatility by hedging, and I maximize our gain on sale through artful, painstaking best execution. And, and that's, not a, you know, that's not a terrible answer. But I want to sharpen things up by, you know, by, by looking at it through the lens of, of global best X, right? So secondary gain on sale, that's just one input into the bottom line, okay? What, what CEO wants to do is maximize net profits given any particular appetite for risk, you know, giving anywhere you want to be on the aggression versus paranoia scale. So I ask, you know, what does that EVP mean by artful, painstaking best execution? Maybe getting every extra basis point on loan sales he puts out for bid. Now, that might be the perfect strategy and he deserves a, you know, a big fat bonus. But best X, if it's not global best X, it's you're, you're, you're not going to get the results you want. You've got limited capital and limited warehouse lines. So if we're in a high volume market and there's an execution that gets us funded quicker, allowing us to better leverage those warehouse lines, then you might well come out ahead giving up a whole bunch of basis points in order to do higher volume, right? And, and then you can add additional nuance such as the delta, the, the, the difference in operational intensiveness uh, and thus in your ops overhead associated with any given mode of execution. All that flows down to the bottom line. So that's why I say I could care less about loan level execution. Show me how any given execution gets me the best results on the company bottom line. 
Well, that leads to the most stunning point that you make in your article and, and in your chapter where you talk about, and this is coming from you, a capital markets person, that some of us have found that forging relationships with clients is the key to long-term success. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. The, um, because, because I, I found that any successful mortgage businesses, and, and you know, I, I've had over the years just thousands and thousands of mortgage companies, little ones, big ones in between that I've come to know well, whether they're wholesale, correspondent, retail, they have the philosophy that their mission is to give their referral sources or their sellers a competitive advantage with their clients. So for a retail shop, you know, that might not, uh, that might mean providing mind-blowing service to real estate agents and builders, right? Give them an edge in selling more homes, provide superior total experience for their buyers, uh, or for, uh, for a TPO shop, helping, helping your brokers to do the same thing for their referral sources. So the, the mortgage companies that, that I really had the, the, the most respect for, that I saw as, as being the most successful over the long term, they're generally competing on the strength of overall relationship rather than on price. And when you when you look at the role that secondary plays in all this, and now you know where does capital markets come into all that? One way is it takes us right back to the issue of loan level versus global best X. So consider non-QM loans, right? Portfolio products in general, let's say. Suppose an investor with agency execution that's often an eighth, maybe even a quarter back of best X can offer you access to portfolio products, which would enable you to be a hero to some of your referral sources, uh, maybe allow you to break into a shop where you'd previously been locked out. In other words, a non-QM loan, a portfolio loan might be exactly what you need to qualify a borrower, uh, to get a deal done in record time, do some sort of old-fashioned, make-sense deal. And being able to do that sort of thing might also be the key to luring away your arch-rival's top producer, right? So, so her future production gets factored in when considering global best X. And that's also, I think that's also a good example of where secondary marketing, operations, and sales all have to work closely together to get where you want to go. Well, you've covered a lot and we only have a few minutes left. Would you like to share a couple of key takeaways for our listeners? Perhaps perhaps the most important uh, one would be this, this idea of, of caring, aggression, and, and paranoia. Learning to, learn to drive with one foot on the uh, accelerator, one foot on the, on the brake uh, in, in a way. Maximum aggression, but maximum uh, uh, oversight and cultivating that mentality uh, among among staff across across the across department lines encouraging that kind of thinking not in isolation in each silo even though that's that's going to improve each silo that kind of thinking but but encouraging it as a team uh, among all staff and and constantly challenging assumptions Right, particularly in a, in an era of of technology, high uh, where we can sometimes have this illusion that we're protected by technology, constantly be challenging, looking under the hood, so to speak. You know, what are the assumptions behind all this, all these, all this fancy output? 
Well, I think that's words of wisdom. And I think from the brilliance, yes, I can't recommend enough that uh, everyone should buy this book. It really is a fabulous series, including the previous ones. And so if you'd like to get a discount, go directly to www.mortgagebanking2020.com and input the coupon code QFS. I want to thank our listeners for sparing, for spending time with us today. And I certainly especially appreciate you just spending time with us. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We appreciate you spending time with us. If your sales team needs training in hiring and lead generation, schedule a free consultation by emailing me at psherlock at qfsconsulting.com.